I was I was pretty straight with them and said, look, you know, you're going to be doing way more than 40 hours. You know, like the joke was, you get paid for 40, you get rostered for 50, and you do 60. That was mm. the at, at least. But what you do get is access to the best wines in the world. Hello, and welcome to the Exonome Wine Co. podcast. I'm David Clark. The purpose of this podcast is to document the stories in South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we are going tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining us. Ex Animo Wine Co. is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. Please go to our website, exanimo.co.za, for more on what we do. Today on the podcast, we have a bit of a change. Instead of me talking to a guest, this time I was in the guest seat of The Vincast, a podcast based in Melbourne, hosted by the intrepid wino a.k.a. James Scarcebrook. And it's all about wine, wine culture, and wine people. Each episode, he chats with someone from a different field in the wine industry to gain some insight into their experiences, philosophies, practices, and personality as it relates to wine and what they do. That may sound familiar. (laughs) James had asked me on previously, but we had never managed to make our diaries match up while I'd been in Melbourne on one of my, well, until now, annual trips. Uh, But very glad we managed to finally make it happen. We talk about my journey in wine, Uh, that started with a glass of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc while working for the Victorian government in the late 90s. Uh, We raced through the next 20 plus years to how I ended up in Cape Town today. Uh, A few listeners have been asking for an episode on my story, so I'm glad to be able to oblige. A big thank you to James for the conversation. You can find his podcast at intrepidwino.com forward slash the dash vincast, V-I-N-C-A-S-T. I think if you just search vincast, uh, you'll find him. And if you have an interest in the Australian wine scene, I highly recommend you check it out. I give you my story so far. this episode of the Vincast, I chat with David Clark, distributor and exporter of South African wines with Ex Animo. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, and thank you to everyone's support of late with uh, new episodes of the podcast and also um, my wines, uh, Vino Intrepido. Um, there have been people who have listened to the podcast and have been interested to try uh, the wines. So I really appreciate people going to my website, vinointrepido.com, to, um, to either buy some wine or um, seek out a, a local a stockist. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's really fantastic to have this positive feedback and, um, hopefully make many more wines in the future. Um, now for this episode, I, uh, was really fortunate enough to chat with David Clark, who is based over in Cape Town in South Africa. And he has a business called Ex Animo, which, uh, distributes wine domestically, but also exports wine to Australia. Uh, and since that recording, um, some of the, uh, the things we talk about, 
um, have become, become a little bit out of date. So, in fact, the South African government have actually gone back or they've, um, they've changed um, the restrictions that were placed on the sale and distribution of alcohol in South Africa. And um, they, you are actually now able to purchase one in South Africa, which is fantastic news for all of those um, producers and, and distributors like David and uh, the wine producers he works with. I uh, hope you enjoy the chat. Uh, stick around to the end um, to make sure you get all the information. But uh, until then, I'll see you on the other side. David, thank you very much for joining me all the way over in Cape Town. Um, and thank you for being on the Vincast. Um, you are someone I've, uh, I've kind of been pestering a little bit, but, uh, you know, like, uh, like I've been sort of mentioning to a few people, it takes a, a global pandemic for us to have a bit more time and be stuck at home to actually be able to, to catch up finally. No, exactly. Exactly. And also the, um, the, the willingness to use like video conferencing software, which wasn't really an option previously well it was an option but it wasn't it wasn't seen to be as a as a popular option previously when, but no it's 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 lovely to have you on i start every episode of the podcast by asking my guest if they can remember the the earliest interaction that i had with wine that had a bit more of a, a an impact on them um personally uh yeah. potentially set yeah, them on the path yeah it was in the uh, the late 90s so i was sort of 19 or 20 i guess i'm a 78 baby so um no, I was working for the state government with Deputy Minister Thwaites, in, uh, who was the, um, the Minister for, for Health at the time, and uh, having after-work drinks as one is on Friday afternoon, which is pretty much why the reason why you work for the government is so you can go to uh, post-work drinks on Friday, which is, yep. tends to be a bit earlier than the other days. And it was a glass of Lawson's Dry Hills Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, nice. Uh, yeah. As a sort of 19 or 20-year-old, I can't remember the exact year. I thought, hang on, this is this is a bit different to the uh, the box wine that I've been drinking throughout high school, and uh, <laughs> and so yeah, that that was uh, that's what started me in the path, and then it was a Gaia uh, Barbaresco, which got me into serious sort of fine wine. That blew my mind. I can't remember the vintage, but someone opened up one, and I just didn't even know that wine like that existed. And uh, yeah, Barbaresco and Nebbiolo in particular still holds a uh, a very, very um, a big piece of my heart, I have to say. Do you have access to that, to much of that wine? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, bits and pieces. Not as much as I would have if I was still in Melbourne, but certainly bits and pieces. And luckily, without the uh, the wet system uh, in South Africa, it's much cheaper. So, <laughs> um, yeah, which is handy because there's, a, there's an agreement to withhold uh, any duties from the EU for wine into South Africa because uh, it's a reciprocal agreement. Yeah, I suppose... Um... I mean, going back to my my studies, looking into particularly like in the Netherlands, South African wines very very strong. So, being being mm. you know, the EU, um, South Africa would sell most of their exports to there. I would think so. Yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah, I think uh, yeah, UK is the the top export market, and then the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden are also in the top five. Mm. So it's all that sort of Northern Europe uh, mm. where they can't really grow red wine. Um, mm. <laughs> Gets into that's where South America and a lot of the um, the language base of in Northern Europe being Germanic and Afrikaans and Dutch sort of influence here helps with the language and the labelling. I, I, I've said this um, a number of times. Uh, I don't think on the podcast, but I, I remember getting freaked out going on the the good old Heineken tour in Amsterdam and mm. uh, freaking out when you know because I'd met a, a group of South African tourists and mm. one of the guys started talking to 
one of the local guys who was working there and I was like, how are you able to understand each other? It's like, well, I mean, it's sort of the same language. I was like, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. So you grew up in Melbourne? In Melbourne, yeah, yeah, yeah. Born and bred in Melbourne, out in Eltham. What, what, what <laughs> so, were you into back then? Uh, oh, smoking um, cigarettes and, you know, skiving and avoiding any sort of uh, responsibility, really, which was, you know, usual sort of outer suburban upbringing in, in Australia, I guess. So um, how did you end up in, in the public sector? Oh, just through lack, lack of any other options, I suppose. I did, did you study um, uni? I went for six months. I did like computer, what was it, computer programming, which is C++. And I was there for six months and I just had nothing in common with my fellow classmates. I ended up spending most of the time at the pub on campus at La Trobe University, making a bit of money, well, and making a bit of money and then losing a bit of money, like shooting pool, that kind of, you know, it wasn't, very, it wasn't a very academic or scholastic uh, pursuit. Uh, and then I left university and I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to go into debt for this. Uh, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed the computer programming thing. It just wasn't, I enjoyed facets of it, I suppose. It's probably the best way to put it. But uh, looking at that for the rest of my life was not, not going to be an option. And then, yeah, so I quit uni and then uh, went on a, like a, a government sort of initiative course of like office administration, like short course, and then ended up in the uh, in the office of yeah uh, the health uh, department at Triple uh, Five Collins Street on the corner of uh, Collins and Queen Street I think yeah level twenty yeah right and, and how, uh, how long did you end up sort of doing that kind of gig uh, but I mean and, and was it whilst you were working there that you started to get a little bit of interest in wine. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. So I was there for about two years and then ended up in the, the Office of the Minister for Health where I was doing a lot of work with Hansard, which is the um, uh, parliamentary record. Yeah. So one of my jobs, certainly not my only job, but one of my jobs was to sort of go through Hansard and look at any sort of health-related uh, conversations and, and uh, submissions in Parliament and give that to the people who did their political analysis and retorts and, and things like that. So it was actually a really well-paying gig. And as a sort of like a 18, 19-year-old, it was really well-paying because I was working sort of parliamentary hours. Uh, so they paid. Oh, the government makes make sure that their, their own gets looked after. Uh, but I was just like, this was terrible. I was trying to, I mean, my whole week was spent trying to work out how hammered I was going to get on the weekends. That was, <laughs> that was, that was pretty much, so there was a, a nightclub, like the Metro nightclub had a, like an alternative night on Thursday nights. What was it called? called Goo. Goo. That's right. Yeah. 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 And so that was a that was a staple. So Fridays were a, like a real struggle every week because I was probably operating on two three hours sleep and still drunk and whatever else was still in my system. Um, Apparently, people so, who like alternative music just couldn't wait till the weekend, or they or they weren't important enough to put it on a Friday. No, exactly. Saturday. Yeah, yeah. They didn't, have, <laughs> they, didn't have, they didn't have as much money as the guys that were into dance music. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which is ironic because because chances are they were coming in and not buying buying any alcohol because they were just all on drugs. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I think maybe there was less um, less social trouble at the uh, the non alcohol based evenings. Yeah. Fair uh, yeah. So it was like, it was the time of the Maduri shaker, Maduri the illusion shaker. The illusion. Yeah. Uh, get it. Oh, uh, remember, like hockey trips. In the late nineties. Get a, get a jug of illusion. I'm like get a jug of illusion. Yeah. Solid. It's a solid choice back in the uh, the late nineties. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, and early 2000s as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then so that occurred and I realized that, hang on, this is not like, this is not my, what I want to do. So I actually took three months off, which I could afford to do, which was because I wasn't spending really any money apart from at the weekends. So I had a little bit of, um, bit of a nest egg to live off. Um, so w- were you commuting in from Eltham? No, at this point I was I was out of I was out of my house by eighteen. So I was living probably in a share house or something. I I moved around a fair bit to be fair. Sort of one year here, six months there, mm. wherever would cheaper and have me. So I lived in Fitzroy for a time, lived in Armadale for a time, uh where else? In Heidelberg. So north to east uh suburbs, Campbell for a time as well. Uh, yeah, it took three, three months off and, realized, and, and like worked, tried to work out what I was going to do. So I enjoyed, obviously, boozing. I enjoyed food. I enjoyed uh, reading. I enjoyed literature. I enjoyed sort of researching um, language. That was the sort of the hand side thing. Uh, I enjoyed sort of horticulture, plants. My dad uh, growing up uh, and still has a, a massive cymbidium orchid fetish. So he's got thousands of cymbidium orchids. Um, so I grew up around that, that sort of rubbed off on me. And so I tried to work out what the best way forward was to sort of hit as many of those interests as possible and wine sort of came out. Mm. So at this point I'd been sort of semi introduced to wine from my fellow workmates at the department of health, which were all, this is the, this is the head office of the department of health. So they were all sort of older. They were sort of at least 10 years older than me, 10 to 15 Mm. years older. So they're all sort of 35 to 40 and like, you know, as as you probably most wine drinkers are, they really only get serious at about 35 and 40 when you can actually... Afford it? Um, yeah, well, if, exactly, yeah, yeah. And your lifestyle sort of lends itself to it. So you're not going out and partying every weekend, so you can actually stay at home and drink a nice bottle of wine or go to yeah, a friend's yeah. house and drink. By that point, you've sort of you've you've weeded out that absolute degenerate friends that you used to associate with in your late yeah, teens, early twenties, and stuff like that, or, or that, or they, or, or they have matured, and you start to yeah, yeah, correct. So right, okay, I had a little bit of a I wouldn't call it a cellar, like a collection, it's like a rolling a rolling selection of like twelve to eighteen supply. Models, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I thought it was amazing that I would sell it for like three months and then drink it. And, oh, that's three months were, you know, very, very important for the, for the development of the wine and, and all that sort of stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, and so I walked into Armadale Vintage Cellars. So it was Vintage Cellars at that point and asked for a job and they said, well, yeah, you can fill the beer fridge for the summer and then we'll see if there's a, there's a job at the end of it. Um, so I filled the beer fridge for the summer and, uh, yeah, at the end of that, I got a job. Um, so I started there as a full-time, you know, just on the floor selling booze. And then um, what happened then? So after that, I went to the new Campbellwell store as the sort of assistant manager, uh, which was fun, um, helped set up that. And then went to the Turex store after it was, um, I think it was uh, Philip Murphy's beforehand. And then it became a vintage seller's. So it was sort of like one of the Philip Murphy's premium stores, sort of like the, the flagship store. Um, so big sort of international uh, selection and top-end selection. Uh, so we went there as the sort of the quote-unquote fine wine manager and sort of hit a ceiling at that point. I didn't really want to be a, a store manager for vintage sellers. So I was actually speaking to, who was it, Rowan from Negotiants. His surname, actually. Really good guy. He suggested that I go to Europe for two years and sort of go work in Harrods, so there's a garbage truck. 
out the front of my house. So I apologise if that's um, if that's on the recording, but uh, no, it's not no. too loud. When was this? This was around about 2002, 2003. So I decided to go overseas. So work six days a week for probably a year to 18 months. So I worked Monday to Friday and Sunday. So Sunday to Friday, I had Saturday off to play cricket and then uh, saved as much money as possible and then left for for Europe with a plan to spend three months backpacking around the wine regions of Europe. And then I'd set up a uh, an interview at Harrods Wine Department which was three months hence. So it was back in the days where with fax machines. And so I had a, I had a letter from introduction from negotiants uh, that I carried around with me saying uh, to, to, to any of our producers, uh, please receive David Clark as a uh, interested and you know, worthwhile person to show around your vineyard and winery and all that sort of stuff. So I think that was David Lemire at the time, who I think was at Negotiants then. So he very kindly wrote me a letter and uh, people like Michael Trembath set me up with appointments in Italy. So we spent pretty much a month in Italy, a month in France and a month in Spain. Uh, backpacking around and then flew over to have an interview at Harrods, got the job at Harrods Wine Department, flew back and then uh, spent the rest of the, another couple of weeks in the Loire Valley, flew back to London the day before I started my job at Harrods because I couldn't afford to live in London without a job. So I arrived the day before, bought some sort of shitty suit thing and uh, and started my job at the Harrods Wine Department. Yeah, that was in 2004. So... Um, obviously, you know, London, um, is arguably probably one of the top three, um, city metropolitan markets for wine in the world. Um, what's, what, what's working at Harrods like as far as wine? Cause I've, I mean, I've I've, I've had previous talked about working in, in different elements, but I've never had anyone who's worked at Harrods. Are they reasonably high end? As far as yeah, as yeah, far it's all creme de la creme. Pretty top yeah. end department. At the time, so. Harrods was still pretty uh, a top end uh, wine re- pardon me, wine retailer. Um, I think it's changed a bit now, but you know things change. Uh, so yeah, creme de la creme. So it was the the top, you know, one to two percent of the world's wines. All about sort of DRC and. First growth Bordeaux, but what, what, what it did do was open up the rest of the world's wines to me. So places like South African wine, Chilean wine, Argentinian wine, this is in 2004. That stuff really wasn't available at all uh, in Australia. Much, a massive amount of Italian wine, which really uh, got into a lot of German stuff as well, which, um, which, wasn't, uh, which I didn't see coming in. Obviously, some of them were coming in in the late 90s and early 2000s, but really the... Uh, Back then, uh, as far as imports, it was dominated by... France, I would think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, well, and I mean, classic, if, you, if you consider New Zealand as an import, yeah. Well, and classic, you know, you 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 had Dr. Lerzen and, and stuff like that, and but it was, yeah, it was it was dominated by France, uh, and that was phenomenal. So that was very cool. And working at Harrods was a very sort of a uh, you felt part of a community. There was a lot of uh, international people, not very many English or, or British people were working at Harrods. Um, so there was a lot of internationals there. Was so that when like I was, part of their, their w- w- like, did they like to have internationals because they were selling wine from around the world? Did they like to have sort of a, a, a an international kind of staff? Um, yeah. But, so there was, you know, I mean, my, my wife was, my future wife was working there at the time as well. So um, Jeanette, so she was 
put in charge of the South African wine selection. I was put in charge of the Australian and New Zealand wine selection. There was a couple of French guys who were, you know, in charge of Burgundy and, and Rhone and, and and then a couple of Italian guys who were in charge of, uh, of Italy and a Spanish guy who was in charge of Spain. And, and so on the floor, in terms of you had your own little section to look after to make sure that all the wines that were in the stockroom were represented on the shelf and that was priced correctly and all that sort of stuff and et cetera, et cetera. So, and and it was, then, a, yeah. was it a reasonably sophisticated kind of program there? It wasn't just like a, we get the wines and we stock them and the customers come in, we sell to them. Was there kind of educational elements was, was yeah I mean, it was phenomenal so losing um uh, so he flew over um from the mosul on his private plane took us through 40 um wines of his uh, from a single vintage so all of the the cabinet spatlaser oslaser etc of each vineyard <clears throat> every single wine going up to the trockenberg and oslaser and stuff like that uh, before we opened, so we opened at nine o'clock. So we had a, um, uh, I think it was a seven thirty call, or we opened at ten o'clock. Maybe was it? Maybe it was eight o'clock to ten o'clock, um, and then tasted the wines, and then he got back into the cab, and then flew back to the Mosul. So that was, and that kind of thing happened not every week, but regularly enough that you know, and it was for eight people. But that was the kind of the 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 pull of Harrods. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we had like football stars like David Seaman, who was the um, goalkeeper, the, the goalkeeper for England at the time. Well, he would <laughs> wear like the, the multicolored sort of rainbow tops, yeah. Yeah, ponytail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he he was he was buying wine. Elton John put in a big order for Cristal, you know. So Jeanette was in charge of that order, and that was like dozens upon dozens of Cristal that had to be distributed. Um, I once took a box of wine on the train with me up to the north of England just to deliver it to a lady because she wanted it and she was happy to pay my wage for the day. So I just took a box of champagne, a six-pack of champagne up uh, on the train and delivered it to her and then then got the train back. We did deliveries on the Eurostar to Paris, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, right. Yeah, it's, every, every, Everything was possible if you had the cash. And that was where you got probably the, the, the most sophisticated sort of um, exposure to wine and, and education that you'd had up to Yeah, in terms, of, in terms of access, there was, I've, I've not seen anything like it. I think um, Hedonism now, uh, who is now, is now run by the guy who was in charge of Harrods when I was there, Alistair Viner, uh, who now runs Hedonism, uh, was running Harrods at that time, the wine department. So, yeah, and he was, he was just after the, the top, top wines of, of any... Uh, given area and was that a, a, a good opportunity also for you to like get to know Australian wine but also communicate about Australian and New Zealand wine um, to the clientele over there? a little bit yeah, a little bit I mean it's yeah at that time Australian wine wasn't as dynamic as it is now um, but it was very strong yeah it was very strong but it was very it was it wasn't as diverse I suppose in stylistic uh, in styles as it is now. So, and I was just blown away by pretty much Italian wine. So I was like in deep, I was totally besotted with Italian wine. So I was, and, and Spanish wine, I have to say, at the time. Yeah, work, was, working there, did you get the opportunity to, to travel more in Italy and Spain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you jump on a, you know, a Ryanair flight and, you know, fly into Loire or uh, went to um, uh, Rioja and, and went to Vinitaly both years that I was there, 
Um, so I flew in and met, you know, Michael Trimbath of Trimbath and Taylor and uh, spent some time there with him. And, yeah, it was, was awesome. Spent some time in Bordeaux, in the Rhone, in Alsace. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. Uh, but that's when you met Jeanette and uh, at that point you started dating. Uh, so we started dating probably about six months after we after I got there. Um, we were both the new guys, uh, the two new employees. So we we went on our WSET courses together. So every person who gets employed at Harrods wine department had to go through or had the opportunity to go to WCT up to level three for free if you passed. And so we did that on Tuesday nights. And so we got to know each other quite well on Tuesday nights and go to our WCT course and then go to the pub and, you know, smoke cigarettes and drink pints and, yeah, and flirt outrageously. Um, and did that kind of, I suppose, uh, elevate your interest in, in South African wine? This is your sort of, you would have been your first exposure to much South African uh, wine? I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking about wine at that time, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't why I was there at the pub. <laughs> fair enough. I didn't mean that specifically, but. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the South African thing really didn't come about until, I was obviously, you know, we got married in 2007. Uh, she was living in uh, South Africa at the time. We'd, we'd finished our two-year holiday working visa situation in the UK, um, so we had to leave. Uh, so she went back to South Africa. I went back to Australia. Uh, we had a long-distance relationship uh, over the course of 18 months. So we only saw each other sort of once in 18 months, and then we got married in, in 2007, and then we moved to Australia. Well, she moved to Australia. We, we moved to Australia together, by which time we'd sort of transferred or transitioned into restaurants and sommelier because we came back to, after working in Harrods and I came back to retail in Australia and it was just dire. It was just so uninteresting um, compared to what I was, where I was working in, 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 um, in London that it was, you know, to get access to the best wines in Australia, you had to work in restaurants. Um, so yeah, went and again, started at the bottom, uh, Got a job with uh, the Grossi family and was a waiter at the uh, the cellar bar for a bit, just to learn how restaurants worked, and uh, and that was cool. It was awesome. I mean, the Grossi family, are, you know, a phenomenal family, and you know, just live and breathe um, hospitality. And then when they opened up Merca down in uh, in St Kilda on Fitzroy Street, I was put in as the I say familiar. I was the guy in charge of the wine list, I suppose, uh, being overseen by Peter from head office. But uh, I was the guy who, if anyone uh, had a question on the floor, I was the person who who went and saw that customer, went went to all the tastings, and so at this point, I had my WCT three, the walk three from the UK, which was still sort of like seemed to be a, a decent uh, qualification at the time. So I don't think it really had started in Australia, and I don't think at that point. Diploma was available, I don't think, at that point, or maybe it was just starting to be available. And so I worked for Merca for two years, enjoyed my time there, and sort of sort of did a, you know, it was either sink or swim and hopefully swim a bit, which was nice, and then applied for a job at Vue de Monde as a, just a, you know, an assistant sommelier, um, or, you know, one of the team sommeliers, and, and got that job, which was very cool, which was I'd sort of been looking at working myself into doing more specific sommelier jobs, and there was only only a few restaurants in Melbourne at the time that had that position available. And had so a te- had a team, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. So that was like, 
there was like Taxi, there was Vudemont, who else? Uh, Rockpool. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't many jobs like that at the time. So I was very happy to um, to go work there. Uh, so worked there under Raul uh, Mareno Yagwe, who was the head sommelier at the time, and Nicola uh, Clerk, who was the assistant sommelier, who was from uh, well French, but I'm um, working in France, so he was over for a, for a year. He was a, a massive influence. And then, yeah, just put my head down and bum up and worked my ass off at, at Vunamond. And in time, Raul left and then and Nico, well, Nico left and then Raul left and then uh, I was left holding the baby. I was the head sommelier at, at Vunamond all of a sudden, which was a phenomenal experience and one that has informed the rest of my wine life since then in a massive way. Just the, the intensity of the, of the workplace, the drive for perfection at every step, the quality of the produce, both in food and wine, um, the hours that are required, the commitment that is required from the staff is all top, top, top. And if, if and it is that thing of if one of the one of the cogs in the whole engine is not working properly, then the end result is is a, a very far from ideal. Um, so that was a very, very cool situation. And again, working with the best wines that came into Australia uh, because everyone wanted their wine on the Vunamon wine list and especially on the uh, the degustation menu, given the fact that Vunamon operated without a menu, people didn't know what they were going to eat. So we had a, as a sommelier team, we had a, a position of power in saying, well, we know what you're going to eat. We're not telling you, so we're going to recommend these wines. Mm. Uh, and based on our conversation of what you like and what you want to spend and all that sort of stuff. So it was phenomenal in terms of being able to open up and taste pretty much whatever we wanted off the wine list. That was amazing. So we had a team of five sommeliers during my time. And then, yeah, so that was pretty much 08 to 2011. And this was, uh, this was kind of, yeah. the, um, I guess, the earlier days or the pioneering days of this kind of fraternity of the sommelier, you know, even though Melbourne has a, um, a fairly robust and sophisticated dining scene. Yeah, so certainly. It's certainly the idea small. of having a sommelier in a, in a venue it's it, it's really only been around in Melbourne for fifteen years. Um, yeah. So so these the, like was it kind of great to be a part of that kind of community of, of you know reasonably small community and and well, I wasn't really it part of it, a bit? it because it was such a sort of like a as you say a, a fraternity. I mean, it was very male dominated, and I'm, I'm I'm not sure if it still is or not. But it was it was very clicky in terms of initially at least. So it was dominated by you know David Lawler, Ben Edwards, um, uh, Dan Sims uh, in Melbourne at least, and they'd all, all sort of worked together and lived together and had shared experience um, out of uh, uh, Adam Foster, um, Evan Milne, yeah Lincoln Riley exactly. So these guys had all sort of worked together at some point or lived together in London or you know had some interaction. Whereas I was coming in from left field. So we got on really well. I, I joined Somalia uh, Australia um, as a member. We did, so I was, I was sort of sort of on the periphery there. And that wasn't, that's not a slight on those guys. I mean, those guys did an amazing job setting up um, the Somalia Association and, and it was because of their friendship that it could work, you know, that they could support each other and not feel um, like one was doing more work than the other and all that Threatened, sort of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. And then uh, in 2011, I left Vudemont. I just well, they were going up to the Rialto at that point, so they hadn't gone up. 
And I sort of saw the writing on the wall that it was going to be an absolute disaster zone. And I'd, I'd walked into Udemont with a clear mission of getting as much out of my experience as possible and learning as much about wine and top-end wine as possible, you know, just immersing myself and getting really solid grounding in, in fine wine in the world. And that's what I came out with. So the whole thing about, you know, paying salaries and doing overtime and, you know, all that sort of uh, stuff that was happening a couple of years ago was, you know, the mostly about kitchen stuff, but certainly front of house stuff uh, got as well. But I didn't mind because I had in my mind that I'm getting something out of it that they, they're not paying me for. And that's how I was talking to, to the sommelier team at the time saying, look, you're going to have to get paid shit. Uh, not going in with t- a sense of entitlement and it's like, you know, uh, you know, I'm I'm getting something out of you. It's 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 more. Well, no, I'm I'm getting. Yeah, but I, I was I was pretty straight with them and said, look, you know, you're going to be doing way more than forty hours. You know, like the joke was, you get paid for forty, you get rostered for fifty, and you do sixty. That was mm. the that was the sort of the you know at, at least. But what you do get is access to the best wines in the world, finished and clear. So you know, we're opening up. So the kind um, of clientele who. You know, like be able to afford and and be open to trying the best wines, you know, and yeah. and, and, and get the best wines to pair with their dining experience. Yep. And the way that the the way that uh, that the system worked at Butamon was in terms of service, we would open up and check every bottle ourselves. So you would at least get to taste every single wine that got opened. Because at any one time there was about twenty different wines on by the glass, therefore available for the degustation to be as flexible as possible. And that changed every month. So we were, we had 20, 20 different wines by the glass every month, which obviously was a full-time job trying to put that into actual practice and, and logistics. So I would give each sommelier sort of a, a band of the wines by the glass to suggest for the new list or for the you know, list coming, two or three lists coming up. So they were off going, going off to tastings and, and to trade days and coming back would say, oh, I tasted this, you know, this Riesling from Alsace. It's got a, you know, it might work with the fried rye dish or whatever it was, you know, at the time. And so that was phenomenal. Uh, and that was really the sales, the sales pitch from me saying, come work for Budamond is that isn't available in many other places. Yeah. So I, yeah, uh, sorry, I was, I interrupted myself there. Uh, 2011 came, I was done. I was pretty burnt out. I was like, like it was pretty intense, sort of four or five years. Jeanette and I had got married. We were looking maybe to have a family and whatever, and that wasn't going to happen. So Jeanette at the time was the uh, sommelier at Ezard. So she was she was working there, and so it was actually quite cool. You know, I, she, she'd leave work at sort of 12, 1 o'clock. I'd leave work at sort of 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. We'd meet uh, back at home. We lived in East Melbourne right next to the MCG, so we were walking home uh, after service and, you know, having a glass of wine and chatting and then, getting up. So we were living the same sort of uh, hours in the day. It wasn't sort of ships in the night when one, one of the one mm-hmm. partner is a hospitality worker and the other one is a, you know, a nine to five and you never see each other except on Sundays type of thing. Yeah. So it was quite cool, but um, yeah, I quit. And in terms of restaurants, there was really nowhere to go for me. I didn't think after Vietnam, there was nowhere, unless it was my restaurant, which was not going to be possible in terms of funding uh, and also time. I wasn't looking to, to put that much time into something that, I, that again. Um, yeah, if you thought you were working hard, you know, work with someone else, you know, if it's your own venue, it's like, well, this is this, I'm just working now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. So, 
So I ended up doing Harvest at, uh, at Best's uh, with um, Adam Waterwitz uh, when he was there. So I moved out to Great Western and did six weeks of, uh, of vintage uh, at Best's. And if you remember the 2011 vintage, it was super wet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first two weeks was pretty much just waiting for the rain to stop, cleaning tanks and getting drunk with the team there because there wasn't much else to do. There was no fruit coming in. So yeah, there's nothing, there's there's nothing much else out there. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a very cool time. So I learned more about wine in those six weeks than I had in probably the whole time I was at Butermond. Like you learn about specific wines at Butermond and and labels and brands and producers. Mm, in terms reasons, of the actual yeah. the actual um, building blocks of wine and how it's made and how production informs what's in the glass. That was super super informative. And I think I'm using that experience, the knowledge gained from that experience more now than I, than I am using the knowledge that I gained serving and drinking the best wines in the world. That's um, interesting. At, at um, I think you can apply the, apply the knowledge better uh, when it's more base rather than top end. You know, yeah, that's, I that's suppose, yeah, like you can apply the principles of viticulture and winemaking in you know, any good wine region around the world. Um, you know, there are always going to be variables, but like what you might have learnt doing that is going to be you, you're much easier, quicker, you're more quickly going to understand a wine from somewhere else. Whereas working in particularly a restaurant setting, you know, yes, hospitality is hospitality, but it, you know, there is going to be a bit more difference going from. Melbourne to New York to some extent, expectations are going to be different or, or experience is going to be different. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of it is you sort of have to take the producer's word for what they're doing in the winery. And if you, if you have no real knowledge of, of the production techniques and, and, uh, and, and different things. You don't know what questions doing. to ask really. Yeah, correct. Or how much wood is it? What's the percentage of alcohol? And that's a pointless questions. So, yeah, it was interesting. So I did that for a bit and then uh, harvest ended. Then uh, uh, Jeremy uh, Shield from um, uh, Dunkel, so the Royal Mail, and Dan, Dan was still the chef there uh, and Jeremy was going overseas for, for a Europe tour and they needed a sommelier to sort of fill his shoes while he was on holiday. So I lived as Jeremy for, I can't remember, I think four or five weeks. So I was still out in Western Victoria lived in his house, worked in his job, didn't wear his clothes. That uh, <laughs> he knows uh, about. So cool. yeah, but yeah, there's no photographic evidence. So, um, can't prove it. Can't prove it. Didn't happen. So that was very cool. Had a, had a great time there. And then finished up that, you know, sort of, that was during winter. So you know, obviously um, harvest was sort of autumn and then, and then winter. So winter in Dunkeld is pretty freaking rainy and muddy and wet. I bumped my car a couple of times and lots of <laughs> stuff. So. So by this time, I'd, I'd spent probably 10 weeks or 12 weeks in Western Victoria with Jeanette still being based in Melbourne. Uh, so she'd come out to visit me in the weekends or I'd go visit her in the weekend. Uh, so I came back into, into Melbourne and then started working for um, Sommeliers Australia. So by this time, the Victorian chapter and the New South Wales chapter had merged and it was now Sommeliers Australia and they needed like an administrative person to, to manage it because Ben Edwards was the president, Dave Lawler was the vice president, I think, or it might have been Ben Mokta was the vice president. I think there was a sort of like a dual presidency situation, I can't quite remember. Uh, but they wanted to take it to the next level and they needed someone to, you know, 
tie up the loose ends and, and make shit happen and, and just be, be an administrative assistant, really. Um, so that, I did that for a while. That was sort of three days a week with Dan Sims as my sort of my main contact. Uh, he was busy setting up the wine guide with Ben um, and that obviously morphed into Revel, which is now um, a very cool uh, wine events company. If people don't know about that company, they should, uh, they should Rev- do Rev- Revel. Revel Global. Oh, global, yes, of course. Taking over the world, four countries at a time. Dan yeah, Dan, honestly, I think Dan was a guest in the first 25 episodes of the podcast. Okay. I think that's about six years ago. What What's happened to his business in six years is just like mind-boggling. Yeah, no, it's been a phenomenal effort from uh, from Dan and uh, awesome. So it was, it was cool to work with those two guys. Um, so Ben and Dan were sort of, you know, similar royalty uh, in Australia at the time. Uh, probably still are, I guess. So it was quite cool to see how they worked and... Yeah, and we, and we we put together a few different things. I was travelling around Australia doing tastings and doing comparative tastings of you know Yarra versus Tasmanian Pinot or Barolo versus Brunello, and doing some really cool stuff. Really enjoyed my time uh, for Sommeliers Australia, and at that point, sort of heading into uh, 2012, uh, Jeanette um, became pregnant, and was she yeah, still working at Ezard at this point? Uh, yeah. So she, I mean, she went to a wine tasting on the due, her due date um, at Cumulus to, you know, to do more selection for, for, for Ezard. So, you know, Ezard, what a phenomenal um, company and, uh, and people, uh, they looked after Jeanette phenomenally well. It's very sad. Super generous. That, um, very sad that yeah. T decided to yeah. close. And, and Quinton, uh, Quinton, who was my assistant at Udamon for, most of my time there ended up working for them as well. Like just and another, you know, superstar of the of the hospitality industry. Uh, I had my epiphany experience at Ezard. Oh, did you? Yeah, nice. Very cool. And that, yeah, and, and they worked, I mean, T worked out very quickly what worked and stuck to it and nailed it and like did it every fucking night and people were pumped. So yeah, it was a very different business model to Vietnamond where they tried to change shit up every you know, 20 minutes, it seemed, keeping us on our toes. And and if it didn't work, it was our fault, certainly not the fault of the people <laughs> in charge, you know. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with my idea. It's just your execution that sucks. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so, yeah, Jeanette was still working as a right up until Grace was born in, uh, in April 2012. And then pretty soon after, it was pretty clear that Jeanette wanted to move back to South Africa, having, trying to raise kids uh, away from her support network of her mother and her sisters and all that sort of stuff. So we moved here in January 2013, yeah, and it's been, what's that now, seven and a half years, which has gone quickly. Far out. So um, moving moving to South Africa with an idea about what you were going to do or just sort of like we'll work it out when we get there? Yeah, a little bit of work work it out when we get here. They have a triennial wine show uh, run by Woza, which is the exports lobby group for the wine industry here. Uh, so it's run every three years. And there was one in sort of September, October of 2012. So I came out for that with a view to moving to South Africa in sort of four months' time. So I was really coming out to see the lay of the land and working out who was who in the industry and what was happening and 
was there, you know, was it, where, where could I fit in exactly? Uh, what should I be doing? Should I be working as a sommelier? Should I, you know, should I change it up and go back to retail? What should I do? So previous to that, I'd started uh, jumping on Twitter. So Twitter had just sort of, not just arrived, but to be matured enough that there was enough people on it. So I was actually... Yeah, back then of, that was kind of the main form of communication in terms of social it media. It was the social media before. Yeah. I mean, there was Facebook, but Facebook remained. People actually had discussions on Twitter about wine. Yeah, not just arguments, yeah. So Facebook was more about your friends rather than... Uh, so Twitter was 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 a, a really useful term, uh, tool for me. So I, what I did is I sort of got on Twitter in sort of South African time uh, in Australia, so into the night, and started sort of engaging with with people online, chats in about South African wine. Uh, so by the time I came for Cape Wine in, in September, October, people knew who I was, but they never met me. Mm. So when I said my name and where I was from, oh, you're that dude from Twitter. Okay, cool. So that was super useful. So I got, I got invited to a few different like lunches and dinners and tastings and, and stuff that I wouldn't have been had access to otherwise. So that was quite cool. And at that time, uh, the sort of South African new way that just sort of started in sort of earnest. To gain traction. Uh, yeah, well, not even gain traction really, but the wines were starting to appear. So it was the first time I'd tasted South African wines that I was super excited about in previous visits. And obviously I'd visited Jeanette a few times over the years. It was all pretty like, basic wine, like just uh, internationally styled stuff you you luckily get it, get it at the airport in Dubai, you know, very basically. Fairly uh, boring Chenin Blanc and Pinotage type stuff. Yeah, or Cabernet or Chardonnay just done in a quote unquote international, international style. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, and so this was the first time I'd seen South African wine producers making South African wine, you know, not yeah. not just of copies of other of other places. So it was hugely exciting. And at that point, I thought that maybe a, a distrib- distribution model for local was was a possibility because most of the guys who I was tasting, who I was excited about the wines that I was tasting, didn't have, weren't selling domestically at all. It was all exports because the domestic market okay. was interested. Okay. So was based around supermarkets, actually. So if you went in the supermarkets. It was just there wasn't a market to sell into. I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. There is a, a, an element of um, centralised alcohol. No, no. Well, there was previously. Um, previously, pre- like pre ninety fours KWV and quota system and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. Down. But it took a long time for sort of boutique retail and restaurants and stuff to sort of work out what the new lay of the land meant and what they could do. So. The, the wine scene here now in terms of retail and, well, you know, not right now, obviously, <laughs> because we can't sell, but in terms of the scene as it is now is, is well more advanced seven years later than it was in, in 2012, 2013. Um, yeah. Uh, so so the, the, what was the market ready for it at that point or was there an element of uh, uh, needing quite. to develop a bit? Still, the market's still not ready. It's, been a, it, it's still been developing. So, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a really interesting time uh, at the moment because obviously people can't buy wine at supermarkets, so people are looking for uh, different styles of wines on the internet, and therefore you know the selection gateway isn't there. You know, you don't have just what's in front of you in the supermarket shelves or in the, in the liquor store shelves. You know, you have the only the only um, 
uh, roadblock you have is is what you're willing to click on, I guess. So it seems like that people are drinking much more diversely now in lockdown than they were previously. Um, oh, okay. So so it, yeah. is it just like venues that sell alcohol, they have to be closed? It's not that like they're basically saying no alcohol no, no, sales no. at all? No, there's... No, there's no alcohol sales at all. But oh, okay. Uh, it, was open, it, was, it was opened up for sort of three weeks. So we went into hard lockdown on March 27. Yeah. So that's when alcohol sales stopped. And then uh, alcohol sales started on the 1st of June again. And so throughout those sort of two and a half months or two and a, you know, 10 weeks or whatever it was, people were buying alcohol but only were able to get delivered in June. Oh, wow. Okay. Because so, I was saying, well, I've so run in, out. So, in, so in that downtime, that's that was kind of yeah. how they were. So we were still, we were still doing business. We were still sort of taking orders and taking payments. We just couldn't deliver the wine. Mm. Uh, and so then, then they opened it up for three weeks, and there was like three weeks of utter madness. Um, so a lot of people like stocked up just in case that they reinstituted the alcohol ban. Luckily, they did because that's exactly what they did. Yeah. So so it, it has changed domestic consumption already by quite a lot. Mm. But back then, the 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 the, um, the domestic market for domestic wine was yeah. just vastly geared towards large retail and large producers and Correct. fairly yeah, exactly. stock standard type stuff. So okay, so yeah. um, and, and so and was, was, doing- so how 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 did you go? Kind of, was it just sort of through Twitter and then kind of word of mouth, you started to engage with some of these guys and say, look, you know, well, no, it, was at, it, was at the, uh, it was at Cape wine, that sort of big wine show. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's like three days in Cape town and all of the, all of the winemakers are there because it's an export orientated wine show. So it, it, they, they try to get as many importers from around the world to come. And so right. that's when all the, the cool kids come out to play. And so I was walking around there. I think I was the only delegate from Australia at the, I may have been one of two or three, perhaps, but I didn't meet anybody else. Who was there? Maybe it was Mike Benny was there as well. No, I think it was the first time I met Mike. He was there. I think he got he got he got a ticket, you know, funded. So he flew over and and did a report and you know had a good time. Uh, was it sound like Mike at all? Yeah, I can't remember. So yeah, I, I was I spent sort of four or five days, three four days tasting wines. So tasting sort of 100, 120 wines a day speaking to a whole bunch of producers, you know, and just getting their stories. Oh, we've been making wine for two years. We've been making wine for 10 years. Where can I buy your wine in, in South Africa? Well, there is really nowhere. Uh, we export 95% of it, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, and so that's where Ex Animo Australia was born because then at, at that time I couldn't work in South Africa. Uh, my paperwork hadn't come through. So we started up a, uh, an importing company in Australia, but it was, running, it was being run by me in Cape Town. And so we started exporting some South African wine in 2014. So um, when did you become friendly with Evan uh, um, to kind of collaborate on this project? Oh, Evan, yeah. Uh, Evan, we went to the first, the Gully Scholarship. Oh, wow. Oh, man. I never got to do the that. Very, the very first one, so the inaugural one, that's where I met Evan and another good friend, Mark Prothero. So mm-hmm. they'd been friends for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we, we got on really famously and uh, had been solid friends ever since. I can't remember what year that was. I think it might have been 2011. So, and, 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 and you probably would have been one. particularly interested in being part of that off the back uh, of your real... No, I think it was 08. 
or 09 because Jeanette won it the next year. So I think Sally, Sally won it the first year. Jeanette uh, won the second year. And part of the, um, the prize of winning is an, a trip to Italy, mm-hmm. uh, which was phenomenal. So we paid, like, I think it was like maybe a 10 grand bursary for a trip to Italy or something. So we threw in 10 grand and I went as a, and carried the bags. Um, and we spent a month in Italy. So a week in, a week in Tuscany, a week in um, uh, Sicily, a week in Alto Adige and, uh, and Friuli, and then a week in Piedmont, uh, which was just a phenomenal trip. Yeah. So but you, um, amongst other things, were friendly with Evan. Yeah. Uh, so, a, shared, a shared love of Italian wines, presumably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just, I mean, he's, he's been deeply in, involved in, in the Sommeliers Association as well. So uh, we never actually worked together, but uh, he was always involved in some way, shape or form. And I think he still is um, in terms of the Sommeliers Association. And, and did you approach him or...? To just sort yeah, of I can't remember. I think, I think I did. I think I approached him because he just started Stock on Hand. So he was working uh, for a while. Obviously, he had his own restaurant in uh, in Torquay and then worked for a while for Heart and Soil for Randall and then started up his own distribution, uh, Stock on Hand. And then, yeah, I think I approached him and said, look, what do you reckon if I put a little, you know, a few pellets together and send it across? Could you sell it for me? And he, yeah, he's very keen. So that's what we did. So it was the first time that I saw South African wine of a level that was interesting at a gastronomic point of view. So um, rather than just good quality, decent drinks. So it was just properly interesting and cerebrally um, interesting wines at my 2012 trip, 2013 trip. So it took me a while to get the paperwork and stuff and get set up here. And and then we sent a pallet across the end of 2013, 2014, I think, yeah. And, uh, and, and of course, you've been very heavily involved, you know, in much more um, than uh, an exporter would otherwise in terms of um, coming out to the market and, uh, and, and bringing out winemakers occasionally. How have you found um, the, the trade and, and general public have um, embraced this yeah. kind of new, new, new old wave of uh, South African wine? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people originally, a lot of people didn't, I mean, they kind of knew that South Africa made wine. It was sort of like, yeah, heard about it, heard of Pinotage in my studies, haven't tasted a whole lot. Um, Pinotage long. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, Steen versus Shannon and, and stuff like that, but not a lot of detailed knowledge about what's produced here and the history of the, of the wine industry, um, and so to speak. Uh, I mean, quality was very, very patchy for a lot of years in South Africa, and that's not... Uh, anything controversial that's pretty pretty standard I mean obviously there's been always been some producers who have, who have produced good wine but as a general rule um, under apartheid you know quality wasn't wasn't the uh, the primary concern almost like the the Eastern European countries under um, under Soviet yeah so yeah it's been interesting I mean I, I've been trying to choose wines that and producers that could only come from South Africa you know not sort of so heavy bias on Shannon uh, and Pinotage from sort of unique areas like the Swatland have been sort of the the cornerstones of what we what we do. So and we're still trying to work it out. Still, still working out what uh, what works in in South Africa in, in Australia for South African wine. Is there um, a similar kind of um, situation in South Africa as there is in Australia? As far as it just seems to be new people. 
cropping up or this like people who have worked somewhere else and they're just playing around with something or they're working in a winery and they're making a little bit of their own thing. Is it a little bit in, more um, embracing the new in, and the old? As in producers? Yeah. Yeah. No, like the, the, the transformation in South Africa uh, in terms of style and diversity of producers has been mind-boggling, I would think, even more so than, than Australia. Wow, like, okay. It's been complete. Like the, but the top wine producers in South Africa, I don't think any of them, maybe one, Canon Cop, uh, was making wine in the 90s. And that's the only one I can think of who's, who's still in the top sort of 20 or 30 producers who isn't a newcomer in the in the in the twentieth century? In the 20th yeah, I suppose century. I suppose that's what's different in in terms of the, the the new wave in Australia. It's not necessarily a quite case of we just weren't producing quality wine. We were, but it was just sort of all fairly similar. It was a style that wasn't really appealing to um, a lot of people, and so that was their impetus to try and do something a bit different. Whereas I suppose in South Africa it was more no, no, we can produce really world class wine. I don't understand why we're doing it. Let's just do it ourselves sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, when, when do you think that the, the Australian sort of diversity happened what, and what, over what time period? 2008 to 2015, is, is, yeah. that, that, was, that was the formative period. And then since 2015, it's just kind of exploded. Yeah, 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 yeah. And how many... How many of the top 30 producers in the country do you think have been making wine for more than 20 years? Not many. No, I mean like, like Henschke and Bindi. And- but I guess it, it, just, it does kind of depend on who you ask because this was a, a, you know, this argument that was going on a few years ago um, where that was like the old, the old gentry, shall we say, particularly of, of sort of wine criticism, wine, wine um media were mm. saying why is it that the top restaurants in australia are not listing these iconic you know old um australian wine producers um mm. you know why aren't they listing more tyrrells and henschke and yalumba and stuff like that that was their that was their argument so i guess it sort of does depend on who you ask what are the top producers because you would be talking about people like, you know, Mac Forbes or, uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you're saying, but I, I, I still think that, that there'd be a, a fairly wide consensus. Obviously not many people would name the exact same 30 producers, but I think that there'd be a fairly wide consensus of, the top 15, if you, if you had to name 30, the top 15 would be pretty pretty universal, I would have mm. thought. Mm. Perhaps I'm not. No, no, I, I, I understand what you mean and I, and I agree. Absolutely, I do agree. Yeah. But I, I think that those, I think there'd be more producers with more vintages under their belt in, uh, in that Australian list versus the South African list. Right, okay, interesting. So, yeah. I mean, where, where have a lot of these guys Just because it came up, just came from us, because as you said, I mean, Australia wasn't making bad wine. It was making pretty undiverse wine, I suppose, or, you know, monochromatic wine. Whereas South Africa, like the bar was so low, like the viticulture was, was pretty poor. There was a lot of room for improvement. And, and that has, 
happened over the last sort of you know ten to ten to twenty years, I guess. Yeah, exciting. Yeah, no, super exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, then then I started up a, uh, a domestic uh, distribution company, um, also called Xenomo, which was a, a silly move, but you know, such as life. Um, I had one name and I used it for both. And that's gone well. So that's that's in its seventh year now. Yeah, seventh year now. So we started that in April 2014. So it took about a year for my paperwork and stuff to, to come through. And then, yeah, it's been really interesting working with small producers uh, who are focused on quality. So I'll, I'll run through a, a list of the guys I work with here. So it's Craven, Foundry, uh, Hogan, Interlego, um, Jan Mayer, Justenberg, uh, Luddite, Restless River. Signs of Sinai, Spion Cop, Tesla Longa, uh, Mother Rock, Horn and Daughters, Van Lockerenberg, Fierberg, uh, Trezan, um, yeah, a whole, whole bunch of cool guys. And, and none of these guys had, had, well, none I don't think had one of those, I think, had previous distribution uh, in South Africa because there was just no, the economy of scale wasn't there. So I had to change the business model a little bit um, to make it work. but. We've, we've managed to do it over over time and, uh, and it's working nicely. Um, and since we've started, um, a whole bunch of other um, smaller distribution companies have, have started up in a similar sort of business model. So it's nice to, to say we had a positive impact on the industry and, and giving South African drinkers a more diverse choice of what they're drinking rather than just the guys, as you say, in, in the UK and Sweden and, and, and Norway. Um, uh, and if people want to check out Xanimo, um, they can do that online. I'm redoing my website on the South African side at the moment. So the website there currently is a bit of a is a shitty basic, you know, WordPress home jobby. But uh, we'll have a um, we'll have a better website coming up, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Using this downtime effectively, hopefully to uh, come out better and stronger and uh, and sharper and fitter. Yeah. And people can follow you on social media as well. Yeah, exactly. So Twitter at David Y. Clark and at xanimo.za. Instagram, uh, xanimo wine co. Um, and then on Facebook as well. Awesome. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, and yeah, like I say, I'm looking forward to both myself and the listeners, um, learning more about South African wine. Yeah. Thanks man. Cheers. Thanks for the opportunity, James. I really appreciate it. Cheers. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And you can follow me on social media. I'm at Intrepid Wino on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, you can head to my website, intrepidwino.com. There's information about the podcast, um, different writing I've done in the past, um, some tasting videos, videos of my winemaking experiences. Uh, and um, you can also check out my uh, my wine brand, Vino Intrepido, uh, on the website, vinointrepido.com. And please do follow Vino Intrepido on social media as well. Uh, if you like this episode or um, any other episode of the podcast, please do make sure you subscribe uh, via your uh, app or platform of choice. Um, there's lots of different ways of listening to the podcast, um, iTunes podcasts, Google podcast app, um, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeartRadio. Uh, it's now on Spotify. Pretty soon it's going to be on the Amazon music platform as well. Uh, and if you have the ability, please do leave a rating and a review uh, it really does help me uh, get the podcast out to a bigger audience. Uh, and why not um, tell a, a friend or family member who is interested in wine to check out the podcast? Word of mouth, to be honest, is uh, probably the best way for people to 
to find out about the show. So I really do appreciate your support. Uh, and um, thanks for listening. Yeah, uh, until next time, bye. Bye.